right, let's, uh, let's go to our second scripture reading today. We're going to be reading in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1,496, 1,496. Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose, mother's, whose mother had been, has been, had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Chiatiel. Chiatiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Thus ends our reading of God's sufficient word. May all who hear it fully understand where their salvation comes from. Last week we began the book of Matthew by discussing Jesus as the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I mentioned that through these three titles, Matthew was making it abundantly clear that Jesus is the eternal king of kings. As a Christ, he is the anointed one over Israel. He is God's chosen man, the rightful king over his people. As the son of David, he is the one to defeat all of his enemies and establish that eternal kingdom. And as the son of Abraham, he expands his kingdom into, into all nations. Salvation is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Yet it is one thing to, to claim these titles for Jesus. It is another to produce evidence 
Hence, Matthew has given to us the genealogical record. But before we dig into that, I thought it would be prudent to give a little more background concerning this gospel. First, who is this author? Who is Matthew? Well, he was also known as Levi, and he was a Jewish tax collector. That being the case, he would have been despised among the Jews, for he would have been seen as a traitor, one who served the Roman cause. In fact, tax collectors had been banished from the synagogues because they had sold out their own people. Even so, Matthew would have been a wealthy man and an educated man as well. Most likely he would have spoken both Aramaic and Greek and maybe even some Latin, for he would have had to communicate both with the Jews and the Romans. So it's, it's no surprise to discover Matthew as being one of the gospel writers. But to whom did Matthew write? Who was his original audience? We recently finished our study through the book of Titus, and, and from the, the contents of that letter, we, we discovered there that Paul had written that letter to both Titus and the church on Crete. But Gospels are, are not like letters. There, there are no, there's no specific audience mentioned, although Luke does mention in his Gospel a Theophilus. Theophilus could be referring to an individual, or it could be just a general title, meaning any friend of God, for that is exactly what Theophilus means. However, a, a gospel is a book that was, was meant to be widely spread. These writers were trying to reach a broad audience, so it's, it's better to think about the, the purpose of such a writing than to discuss any specific hearers or readers. So the question is, why would Matthew write such a long narrative? Well, gospels have, have a dual purpose. Luke mentions one reason in verses 3 and 4 of his first chapter. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wrote this book so that this friend of God would know the, the certainty of the things they have been taught. And so we see here Luke had an apologetic or a discipling purpose in mind, aiding the believer in gaining confidence in their faith. And then in, in the Gospel of John, we read this, John 21, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here we see an, an evangelistic purpose. These records of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection are, are there to aid the reader in understanding that Jesus is the one that has come to save them from their sins. 
It is a proclamation of the gospel. And so we see these through these two verses the, that the two of the main uses for the Gospels are to evangelize the lost and to disciple those who are being saved. And this is what Matthew intends as well. And we see in his first two chapters, he is establishing an intelligible and cohesive record of the genesis or the origin of the incarnation of Christ, beginning with a genealogy. And did you notice that Matthew does something interesting with this list of ancestors? He divides them into three sections. Look at verse 17 once more. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. It is here that we see the inverse of verse 1. There Jesus is described first as the Christ, and then the son of David, and then the son of Abraham. And now here in, in verse 17, we see first the genealogy of Abraham, then the genealogy of David, all leading up to the entrance of the Christ. <clears throat> what Matthew is doing, he has inserted what is known as an inclusio, or a bookend, if you will. Matthew has wrapped this genealogy in the titles of Christ, indicating the purpose of including this list of names. And that purpose was to bring evidence to the reader of who Jesus is. And we see as well that, that, that each of these three sections has, has 14 generations. Now, in a Hebrew genealogy, you have to understand that, that not every ancestor was always included. Not, not everyone who was the father of so-and-so uh, was added to the list. Listen to what D.A. Carson has to say about Matthew's genealogy. Approximately 400 years are covered by the four generations from Perez to Aminadab. Doubtless, several names have been omitted. The Greek verb translated, was the father of, does not require immediate relationship, but often means something like, was the ancestor of, or became the progenitor of. What Matthew is doing here is, is indicating the, the prominent names in the ancestral line, making sure that there are 14 generations in each of the three sections. The question is, why 14? Why did Matthew use 14? There are differing theories out there, and one is that the number 14 is the number of David. When you spell out David or David in the Hebrew and assign a numerical value to each Hebrew letter, you get the sum total of 14. Another theory is that, that Jesus represents the completeness of God's salvation. 14 divided by 2 is 7. There were seven days of creation, the number of completeness. And so leading up to Jesus, you have three 14s or six sevens, and Jesus begins the seventh seven. 
But honestly, we, we don't know the reason why Matthew included three 14s. But, but what is significant is some of the names that he chose to include that he didn't have to. Particularly when it came to the, to the women on, on the list. You see, it wasn't typical for a Jew to mention the names of the mothers and, on their list of genealogies. And if, and if a woman was mentioned, it was because she was a venerable ancestor, adding value to, to the rep, reputation of that descendant. And yet, Matthew speaks of five women, all with checkered paths. Let's look at the first of these names in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Again, Matthew could have, by now, already mentioned Sarah, or Rebecca, or Leah, all of whom were, were revered among the Jews. And yet, Tamar gets the first nod. Who is Tamar? Well, in Genesis, we find out a little bit about her. Tamar was a Canaanite woman who was married to Ur, the son of Judah. Well, Ur died, and so Tamar was given to Judah's other son, Onan. Now, Onan refused to get Tamar pregnant and produce an offspring for his brother Ur. And so the Lord put Onan to death. Therefore, Judah, her, her father-in-law, told Tamar, just wait until my other younger son gets a little bit older. His name is Shelah. I will give him to you once he's old enough, and then he will fulfill the duty of a husband for his brother Ur. However, time passed, and Tamar was forgotten. And so what did she do? She dressed up as a prostitute. She tricked Judah into sleeping with her, and she became pregnant with his children, the twins, Perez and Zerah. And it's through the line of Perez that Jesus has come to us. The next woman we see, the next women we see are Rahab and Ruth. Look at verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Now, Rahab was another Canaanite woman from Jericho. And she was a prostitute. However, when, when two of the Israelite spies came into her city, she showed them favor by hiding them in her home and thus saving their lives. So when Jericho fell, God had spared her life because she had faith in the Lord and she showed kindness to the Hebrews. And she eventually married into the Jewish nation, becoming a part of God's people. And then we have Ruth. Ruth was another foreigner, a Moabite woman who had also married into Israel. You see, when there was famine in the land of Israel, a man named Elimelech took his wife Naomi and, and their two sons to live in the land of Moab. It was there that Elimelech's son, Malon, married Ruth. Well, Elimelech and his two sons died, 
And Naomi had decided to return to Israel, but to have her daughter-in-laws stay in Moab, for she was a poor woman and really had nothing to offer them. Ruth, however, was devoted to Naomi and would not leave her side. And it was, so she followed her back to Bethlehem, and it was there that Boaz eventually took Ruth to be his wife, fulfilling the role of the kinsman redeemer for Malon. And the fourth woman we see, we find it in verse 6. Look at this. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now it's interesting that Matthew doesn't mention this woman by her name, but simply says Uriah's wife. We know who this woman is, and Matthew knew who this woman was. Her name is Bathsheba. She was married to a foreigner, to a Hittite named Uriah. Now Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was a a proven and loyal warrior for the king. But while Uriah was away battling for God's people, King David slept with Bathsheba, getting her pregnant. David then tried to to cover over that sin by by sending Uriah to the front of the battle line and then pulling the troops back, letting Uriah die. By not mentioning Bathsheba's name, but rather putting in Uriah's name, Matthew is drawing significant attention both to the sin of David and the fact that Uriah was a Gentile. The question is, why? Why did Matthew install these four women into this genealogy of Christ when he didn't have to? There are two things that stick out like a a sore thumb. And the first is that, that they all have some type of connection to the Gentile world. Three of them were born of a foreign people. And the fourth was married to a Hittite. Just as the promise of Abraham was a blessing to all nations, these four women demonstrate the grafting in of the wild olive branches into the original tree. The kingdom of heaven extends beyond the borders of Israel to the ends of the earth. Second, each of these women are are reminders of the failings of Israel. They they all involve some type of egregious sin, whether it be their sin or the, the sins of others. With Tamar, it was the sin of Judah refusing her his son in marriage. With with Rahab, it, it was the sin of prostitution. With Ruth, we we find a family uh, that that had rejected the land that God had given to them for the land of Moab. And with Uriah's wife, Matthew brings us face to face with David's sin, adultery, and murder. All of this demonstrates two things for us. The first... God's plan of salvation cannot be thwarted by by the schemes of the devil or by the wickedness of men. 
It doesn't matter how egregious the evil, God will overcome it with good. Second, these these stories demonstrate that, that even the worst of sinners are not exempt from God's kingdom. And none exemplify this more than, than David. And yet, when, when David was confronted with his sins, when the prophet Nathan came to him and approached him, David repented and trusted in God for forgiveness. And we saw this in the psalm we read earlier. Let me read it to you again. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in my inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be white, whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bone you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Not even a murderer is exempt from God's plan of salvation. Any who repent of their sins and trust in Christ will receive forgiveness. And that includes you. Dear friends, you you might be thinking to yourself that, that the sins you have committed exclude you from God's mercy. You might be saying in your mind, but pastor... You don't know the things that I've done. You're right. I don't know. But God knows. And for those who who trust in Christ, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. You see, when you you look closely at this genealogy, you you will find that it is full of sinful, sinful people. And not just the ones that I mentioned, but all of them. Jacob was a lying cheat. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Many of these kings that were mentioned worshipped at the altar of Baal. Some had repented while others did not. Those that did received welcome into the kingdom of heaven. And those that didn't... Well, their evil did not stop God's plan. His design of salvation went forward and has come to you as well in the form of a king.
through these three sets of 14, we see their, their culmination in verse 16. Look at this. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Here we see the last of our five women, Mary. In Mary, we see the scandal of sin where there was actually no sin. That's not to say that Mary was sinless, because she wasn't. But her pregnancy occurred before her marriage to Joseph, and there was uncertainty as to who the real father was. Of course, Matthew would soon explain that this conception came through the Holy Spirit a little later on. But in verse 16, he, he, he leaves the subject untouched. It's simply Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Whether or not Joseph was a father is left unstated. The scandal is there. Though in reality, there was no sin in the matter. And this would be the epitome of Jesus' mission. As he went to the cross bearing the scandal of sin, even though he was innocent. You see, this, this is what Jesus did. He took upon himself the, the sins of the world, paying the just penalty in order that sinners could find entrance into his kingdom, in order that you could find forgiveness for your sins through this one born of Mary. Jesus is the focus of it all. He is, he is the son of Abraham, assuring you that salvation goes out into all the nations, that none are excluded. He is the son of David, reminding you that even the worst of sinners are welcome. And he is the Christ, for he is your king, delivering to you a kingdom that is eternal. So look to the genealogy of Christ and find comfort in the fact that God's plan of salvation is not thwarted. Hear those, those names of old and realize that, that even the worst of sinners are welcomed by the grace and mercy of God. And go to that one born of Mary, this Jesus who is called Christ, and repent of your sins and trust in him. Let us pray. Father, we confess that we are not worthy of your kindness. We thank you for sending your son to die for our sins. That even the worst, the worst of us can be washed clean by his blood. We ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you give us hearts of repentance and the faith to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.